Well, at the beginning of every year, as a church, we start the year together by looking at a historical account of the life of the most influential person in history, Jesus Christ. It's a very powerful thing to look at the life of Jesus. And that's why we start every year looking at one of the Gospels. And this year we are looking at the middle section of Matthew's Gospel. And as we do, as we look at the Gospels, the person of Jesus, he comes to life. Not that he's dead, he's alive, he's living, he's been raised to life again. But out of the pages, we begin to see him, he becomes vivid, he takes on flesh, and we get a sense in our imagination and our understanding that he is the Son of God. And this year we're turning to Matthew's Gospel, the middle section, and Matthew was an eyewitness of the events. He saw Jesus taught, he saw him heal, and he records them happening for us as history. Now the Christian faith, it is profoundly simple. Deep, yes, but also profoundly simple. Now, it's not always easy to see its simplicity because 2,000 years of church history and the culture we live in, it gives us a a variety of different... um, It obscures what we see when we come actually to the Bible's teaching and we find it harder and harder and more complex to understand what actually is very, very simple. Uh, This week, I discovered a little story about the... uh, the Prince's Palace of Monaco. Anyone visited Monaco and been to this palace? One person, two people, three people. Okay, cool. I talk about all these places. I've never been anywhere, right? <laughs> so I'd love to go to this place. And in 2015, um, some restorers made a discovery uh, that there was a series of hidden frescoes in the ceiling in a number of u- rooms where, which had been papered, covered over with paint over decades and decades. And they dated these frescoes to around about the 16th century during the Italian Renaissance, uh, painted by masters. And for generations and generations, they'd, people had painted over these. And they'd been forgotten. People forgot what lay beneath, covered in layers and layers of paint. And in 2015, they discovered it. 40 art restorers came in and started scraping back the paint to uncover the beauty of what was originally there. And as we start the year as a church, that's what we're doing with Jesus. There's so much misinformation out there about what Christianity is, who Jesus is, and what we do start of every year as a church, we must come back to the person of Jesus and encounter him afresh regularly every year. It's as though we're painting back, uh, scraping back the paint to see the beauty of what was originally there. This year we're in Matthew chapter 8 to 11. You might be going, what happened to Matthew 1 to 7? We did that last year, so go back on YouTube and you can see that. And of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Matthew has the tidiest mind. Is very careful about the collection, the arrangement, and the presentation of his material. And if you have a look at Matthew chapters 5 to 7, here we see Jesus' words, and in chapters 8 to 9, they represent a collection of miracles. So Matthew deliberately sets before his first readers 
the words of Jesus and the works of the Messiah, Jesus. Last year, we looked at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, in his famous sermon on the mount. Here he described what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. And if God were to come to earth and you were to sit in his classroom and you'd listen to his teaching, you'd be astonished. It'd be profound. It'd be insightful. It'd be elevating. It'd be glorious. It'd be wonderful. And that's exactly how the people come away from listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got a Bible, open up to chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 28. He gets to the end of his teaching there, and this is what we read. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Uh, That's exactly what you would expect if God came to earth and taught people. But Matthew also wants us not just to see the words of Jesus, but to see the works of Jesus. Not just learn about the kingdom of God and hear it proclaimed, but see the kingdom of God demonstrated. And so in chapter 8 and 9, we see nine stories of people for whom the kingdom of God comes into their lives. Nine miracle stories where Jesus heals people over and over and over. And they're really three groups of three stories. Archie Pullos last week spoke about the first three stories. Today I'm slowing down just to talk about the fourth story, the calming of the storm. And over the coming weeks, we're going to slow down and look at each one of these stories in turn to see the kingdom of God demonstrated. In each one of these stories, Matthew's intention is to confront us with the question, who is Jesus and what does it look like to respond to him? Each one of these stories, that's the question they're answering. Who is Jesus and what is the right way to respond to him? How should you respond to Jesus? And the answer, of course, is to put your faith in him. And in each one of these episodes, we'll see a way of either putting your faith in him well or a shoddy way of putting your faith in him. Last week, we saw the Roman centurion, do you remember? And his servant is sick. He goes to Jesus for help. And he even says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my hand. You say the word and it'll be done. I trust you that man. Jesus says, I've not seen greater faith even in Israel than the faith of this Roman centurion, not a Jew. So there we have great faith. We learned about that last week. But today, this week, we're looking at the calming of the storm. And and you would expect, okay, the disciples in the boat, we're going to see great faith. But Jesus says that they have little or impoverished faith. So open up your Bibles again and have a look at it. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. This is what we read. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith to criticism. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this? There's the question. That's what Matthew's 
putting before us every story. Who is he? What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So who is this man and how should we respond? And the answer is he is the son of God come from heaven to rescue us. And the right response is we are to put our faith in him. Now, in that culture, that was a very simple message. And in our culture, it should be a simple message, but it isn't so simple today because that word faith has a lot of layers of paint obscuring it so that we can't see actually what it really means. The word faith has taken on so many different meanings in our culture and our community so that if I say, I have faith, or you hear someone says, I don't really have enough faith, What they really mean is quite different to what the Bible actually says. And so the simple message of Jesus has been lost. When you hear people talking about faith today in the community, what, what is it that they mean by that? And I think often they mean some kind of spiritual instinct, a religious impulse, some kind of belief where you have no evidence, you're just kind of hoping it's true. Uh, Atheists would call it some superstitious uh, belief with no evidence. Uh, A number of years ago, I read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and he that's how he defines faith. And I noticed a couple of years ago on Christmas Day, Dawkins tweeted this, faith means belief in the absence of evidence. Is that what faith is? That's what many atheists would claim what Christians do. And sadly, some Christians would accept this definition. But that is not at all what faith means. Faith, uh, at least in the Bible, is the same word for trust. It means to believe something to be true. And we're being told, no, no, faith is believing something's true even though all the evidence is against you. That's not faith. That's gullibility. When the Bible uses the word faith, it simply means to trust. And to have faith in someone is to trust them, to rely on them, to be confident that what they say is true. Now, you can do that rationally on the basis of detailed evidence, or you may do it irrationally because you're gullible, but either way, you're exercising faith. Um, uh, John Lennox um, he did a, uh, a debate with Richard Dawkins a number of years ago in 2007. And he picks up on this very common misunderstanding. And I want to show you the video because it's just so helpful on this point. I'm not sure if the audio is going to work. All right, so here we, let's try. Blind faith yes. is very dangerous, especially if it's coupled with a blind obedience to an evil authority. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to emphasize is true whether the blind faith is that of religious or secular people. But not all faith is blind faith, because faith itself carries with it the ideas of belief, trust, commitment, and is therefore only as robust as the evidence for it. I can't speak authoritatively for other religions, but faith in the Christian sense is not blind. And indeed, I do not know a serious Christian who thinks it is. Indeed, as I read it, blind faith in idols and figments of the human imagination, in other words, delusional gods, is roundly condemned in the Bible. My faith in God and Christ 
as the Son of God is no delusion. It is rational and evidence-based. Part of the evidence is objective. Some of it comes from science. Some comes from history. And some is subjective, coming from experience. But the evidence is, is all important. I mean, Einstein's predictions fit in with, um, with uh, observed fact and, they, and with a whole body of theory. Whereas we only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence. I presume you've got faith in your wife. Is there any evidence for that? On yes, which plenty. You base it? Yes, plenty of evidence. Um, mm. I... <laughs> Let's generalize it. Never mind about my wife. Let's generalize it. <laughs> Okay, Br brilliant, brilliant debate. Go check it out, the full debate on YouTube. But, you know, when the Bible speaks about faith, this word, it lies at the heart of our response to God. The gospel declares to us who Jesus is, what he's done. It tells us God's plans for the world and for each one of us, and it calls us to trust him, to lean on him, to be confident in the evidence before us. And so what we need to do, we need to come back to the Bible and let it be the paint scraper because what does the Bible actually teach us about faith? What does this story teach us about faith? Now, you might assume that this story of the disciples in the boat, it's a story about the great faith of the disciples because just look down at verse 25, the disciples went and woke Jesus, so they go to the right person, they go to the person for help, they say, Lord, save us, they use the right title for Jesus, Lord, we're going to drown. And so you might assume they call out to Jesus when they're in danger, they call him Lord, they put their trust in him, and he saves them that this is an example of great faith. But that would be a mistake, because what does Jesus describe their faith like in this story? Look down at verse 26. He replied to them, You of little faith. Why are you so afraid? So this is a story not about how we should trust God, but how we ought not to trust God. This is a story, and each one of these stories, these nine accounts of miracle stories, will show us either healthy faith or unhealthy faith or just no faith at all. Now, it's interesting that he says, you have little faith, and that's a criticism, because doesn't Jesus elsewhere say, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move for you? Doesn't he commend small faith elsewhere? That isn't his point here. He is criticizing them. He's critiquing them. And he's saying their faith is weak. It's little. There is something there. He's, he's not saying there's no faith. But he's critiquing how weak, small, and stupid their faith is because they're afraid when they shouldn't have been. If they had real faith, fear wouldn't have been a part of their makeup even though they're in a storm at sea about to drown so notice jesus is critiquing their faith which is the very thing you're not allowed to do in our culture you know people can believe anything they want just you're not allowed to critique what they believe but jesus is doing that he's saying your faith sucks guys it's really really bad now what is it that they lacked 
Small faith. What is it that they're lacking? How would their faith grow? Why are they so afraid? Well, their faith is small because they didn't believe Jesus being with them would mean they would be safe. That's their issue. They go to Jesus because they hope Jesus can do something for them. But they're not sure of it. They don't have confidence. Remember faith, synonyms, confidence, relying on, leaning on, depending on. It looks like they believe, but they don't really have confidence that by being with Jesus means that they're safe from a storm that looks deadly. So just reflect on this story. This passage, this story, it is a story about how impressive Jesus is. We see him with authority over nature itself. The wind and the waves and the sea, they obey him. So it's raging one moment and calm the next. And he simply uses a word and it stills. Now, I'm a surfer and often I'm out in the ocean and the waves are small and I try and conjure bigger waves. I'm like, come on, come on. And, uh, and at other times the waves are big and I'll try and flatten the waves. Please don't let this wave break on my head. You know? But every time it doesn't change anything. I can't make the waves big. I can't make it small. Nothing I can do can conjure a different scene in the waves that I surf. But Jesus was able to do that. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And notice it wasn't just the wind that dies down, the waves flatten also. And that's extraordinary because usually when a storm passes, so had it just been a coincidence, oh, the wind dies down, that happens. Uh, when the wind dies down, the waves don't stop. Surfers know this. You want winds blowing hard over many, many distances to produce the waves but then you want the waves to keep coming when the wind stops. And usually when a storm comes, there's waves that are big and there's winds that are big, but then the winds will pass on, but the waves are still there, and that's perfect for surfing. And that's what usually happens. But notice, uh, Jesus calms both the wind and the waves immediately. It's extraordinary. And he does it with just a word. There's no conjuring. There's no, not even a prayer to God or the gods. There's no chance. There's no magic wand. There's no adjuken. There's no, uh, you know, his eyes don't frost over like Storm in X-Men when she's like, shh. Like, there's nothing like that. He simply rejukes the, rebukes the wind and the waves like you would your own dog who's jumping on visitors who've come to your home. Frankie, down. And go to your... Go to the corner, and she goes and sits on her mat, right? That's what Jesus does, and the wind and the waves obey her, him. And so they say, verse 27, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. They're amazed at his authority, a man, a man who could still a storm by a word. Now, so you might think they're men of faith, but Jesus said, no, they're not men of faith. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? They were men of little faith. They were amazed at what Jesus could do. But being amazed is not the same thing as having faith. They were amazed at what sort of man he was. Who is this guy that has authority over this? But they haven't yet come to con the conviction of who he was. 
We know that he is the son of God entered into our world, taken on human flesh, the king who rules the world. They were amazed at who this man was, that he could control the elements of the world with a word. They are amazed at Jesus' authority over the waves, but they hadn't yet come to the conviction that he was the son of God. And that's why Jesus critiques their faith. They believe something about Jesus. They call him Lord. They go to him for help, but they haven't yet understood who he is. And so Jesus says something's lacking in their faith. And the sign that something's lacking is they panic. Panic displays their lack of confidence that Jesus is the Son of God who has the power to control the wind and the waves. And so we're slowly peeling back the layers of paint that's covered over what the Bible means by faith. Here are men who don't have faith as they should. Now, if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 107, or if you've got your phones, put it on flight mode, but come over to Psalm 107, so you're not distracted. Psalm 107, and um, Psalm 107 is a song of praise for all the ways God has saved his people in history. And it begins, Psalm 107 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And what we read after that is just a series of salvation stories where God has come to the aid of his people in saving them from some danger. And in the middle, verse 23, we read a particular story of the Lord God saving a bunch of sailors. And this is how the psalm goes. Some went out on the ships in seas... They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and he stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. And his wonderful deeds for mankind. So the Lord here... Here's a story about the Lord God having power to stir up the tempest. The waves like a tempest and then flatten it with a word to save his people. Now with that in mind, that's something that God does. He has authority over the wind and the waves like that. God has that. You come back to Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Do you realize who it is that's saying that? He's the one, he's the one, who himself can calm the storm. He is the Psalm 107 person who has the ability to flatten waves. And he's the one who is asleep in the boat. Now, why is Jesus asleep? Why is he sleeping in the storm when the waves are raging among the fishermen, so much so that these fishermen, who they work on the ocean, they're not some puny pastor in Surrey Hills who's never really experienced an ocean roaring. Right? Put me in a boat in the middle of the ocean, with a, I'd be very scared, right? That isn't these guys. These guys have got biceps. 
They got rough hands. They are strong. Nothing intimidates them, but they seriously think they're going to drown, which means it's a serious storm. And yet Jesus is asleep. Now, why is he asleep? Well, two reasons. One, he's human. God, the Son of God, entered our world and he took on real human flesh. And uh, the divine nature and the human nature were joined so that Jesus got exhausted and he needed to sleep. That's one reason why he's asleep. But the second reason I take that he is asleep is that he is indifferent to the storm. He is the God of the universe. He created all things. He sets the boundaries for the oceans and their waves. He is the one who speaks and stirs up the tempest. He is the Psalm 107 one who speaks and everything is hushed. And so he sleeps with an indifference to the storm, knowing that he is completely safe there. They're terrified. Uh, even though they've got that guy that Psalm 107's talking about, they're with them in the boat. And they come to him and they say, Lord, why are you asleep? We're terrified. Don't you know? You know, there's a storm raging. And Jesus says to them, what's wrong with you people? Don't you know who's in the boat with you? Why are you so afraid? Don't you know who I am? And he stands up and he says, quiet, be still, and the ocean obeys him. And they're even more terrified, Mark's gospel tells us. And he says, why are you so afraid? And they ask, who is this guy? What kind of man is this? Even though they've just seen the wind and the waves obey him. See, if they knew who was sitting in the boat lying asleep in the boat with them, they would have had no concern at all. They would have thought, hey, as insecure as we feel right now, we are safe and secure in the hands of the great God of the universe who's here with us. If they knew who Jesus was, the Son of God, they would have had confidence in him in this moment. And they would have put their trust in him and they would have felt secure in him in this moment. They've seen what he's been doing. He's been healing the sick, demonstrating power even to raise the dead. And a storm comes up. They should have concluded by now that this is the son of God. But they are of little faith. They know he's the right guy to go to but they don't yet believe that he's got power even over nature, that he's God himself come to be with us. So let me put this together. Faith isn't a blind leap in the dark without evidence. That's not how the Bible uses the word. Faith is the only reasonable response to the evidence before you, the evidence of who this man is. And last week we saw the centurion come to Jesus and say, Lord, heal my servant. And you can do this without even visiting my home. Now, why does he say that? Because he's seen Jesus in action. He's seen enough to know Jesus, to know that he can do this with a word. And so he comes for help to the only one who can help. And it's not a blind leap in the dark. It's having seen 
and understood and being compelled by the evidence to put his confidence in Jesus. That's what the centurion does. And that's why Jesus says, great faith. The reason Jesus is critical with the disciples is because saying, haven't you seen me in action? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Now, they know enough that they come to Jesus saying, Lord, save us. They know he can do something, but they don't believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God who controls the wind and the wave. And as a result, they are terrified. See, if you believed in Jesus, if you believed he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King who had come into the world to establish his kingdom, why on earth would you believe that he and you and the ship was all going to sink in the ocean? He's the King. Come to bring his kingdom. He's not going to drown. And so if he's not going to drown, you're not going to drown. And so, see, they don't believe Jesus was the king. And that's why Jesus critiques their faith. They have a spiritual impulse. They're spiritual. They have a religious impulse. But Jesus says, that's not the faith that I've come for yet. You need to know the truth about me. And then it'll be real, genuine faith. Uh, and, uh, and that's what he is saying. See, what is faith? Faith means to put your confidence in Jesus, to believe his words are true. It's leaning on, placing your confidence in Jesus. And that's the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. The purpose of the whole Bible is to give us information which we can put our confidence and trust in the God of the universe. There's a sense in which we shouldn't need anything else. But God in his kindness, he comes to us. He enters human history in a very visible way so that we can see him in action. We can listen to him talk and we can learn to trust him. As we listen to his words and we see his works, it's hard to conclude anything else but that he is worthy of our trust. It's as though he's saying, you know me, you've seen me, you've seen what I can do, you've heard me teach, trust me. Trust me to lead you. Trust me to rule your life because I'm worthy of your confidence. And so Matthew shows us that Jesus, he teaches like no one else taught and he acts towards sickness and illness and storms the way no other human has. And Matthew shows us that, that we might have confidence in Jesus. It's evidence that we might place our faith, our trust, our reliance in Jesus. If Jesus is God walking amongst us, his life is exactly what you'd expect of God, full of wisdom, full of power, full of compassion, fixing the world as he goes by. And faith, trust, confidence is the right response. Have you placed your trust in him? What's stopping you? I'm not, that's not, uh, well, it's kind of rhetorical, but I'm, I'm at, what is it? List it. Because every effort you put into exploring who Jesus is is worth it. Every bit of attention to this is, this is very important. And so what, is, what, what evidence do you need? There's evidence. Come and talk to us. Uh, come and talk to the person who brought you along to church today. Don't ignore this. It's extraordinarily important. And we want to help you explore this. 
Faith is the right response. Here's the evidence. What are you going to do with Jesus? Now, as I conclude, there is a puzzle in this passage. I don't know whether you uh, spotted it. And um, I want to address this puzzle before we finish. So I want to apply this. You know, as we seek to apply this story to our lives, we get into a little bit of difficulty because if faith is trusting that I will not drown if I am with Jesus, why is it for the past 2,000 years Christians have died literally of drowning around the world? Toby, you said that they lacked faith and that true faith would have been being confident that being with Jesus would mean that their boat wouldn't sink and they wouldn't drown. Does that mean because I'm with Jesus, I'm no longer in danger of drowning? Are you really saying I can go sailing into a storm with no experience and I won't drown? Do you see the problem? Because, okay, I don't think any of us would be so stupid as to think that but we do apply it to the storms of our lives, the metaphorical storms, and usually the application from a story like this is, hey, trust God when you're in the storms of your life. He can get you out of it. Is that really what this passage is saying? Because the problem is Christians do literally get shipwrecked and drowned. The Apostle Paul tells his story of being shipwrecked three times. He spent a night and a day... Uh, floating in the open ocean, waiting for rescue. One of my favourite Christian hymns is a song by Horatio Spafford called It Is Well With My Soul. And he wrote that song after his four daughters drowned when their boat sunk crossing the Atlantic Ocean to England. The ship sunk, his wife survived, but all four of his daughters drowned. And he was a man of great faith. Did he not believe enough? Did they not believe? See, this story, it's quite simple. Jesus' power and authority over the most powerful things in life that we face. He is the Son of God who controls everything, so we should put our trust in him. Simple. But we need to peel back the paint, because what does this mean for us? Is Jesus really promising that nothing bad will ever happen to you, that if you're a Christian, it's just smooth staming, smooth sailing, and he will get you out of every storm in your life. Is that what faith is? That I need to be confident, positive, hopeful, optimistic, that whatever storm comes my way, Jesus is going to snatch me out of it. Is that what this is teaching? A friend of mine shared a story a couple of years ago about a couple at his church. The wife had been diagnosed with cancer, a very aggressive form of cancer. She was given six months to live, but well-meaning Christians came and said to her and to her husband that if they just had faith and didn't doubt, she would be healed. And so they worked very hard to conjure this kind of faith. But after six months, she ended up dying anyway, and the husband was angry. Not angry with God, not angry with the friends. Who was he angry with? His wife. Why? Because she let them down by having doubts, by not having enough faith, by not really believing that she would be healed. And if she'd just been positive enough, 
with no negative thoughts, just proclaim positive things, then everything would have been all right. And the fact that she died is proof she didn't have enough faith, and that was her fault. Now, what a terrible thing to say. What a terrible stress to add to the stress of someone's death. Now, but is that what Jesus is saying here? If you call out to Jesus in the storms of your life and just believe, that's, that's the faith he's asking for? No. Why? Well, for starters, Jesus saves these disciples who didn't have full faith. Right? <laughs> so if you want an example of Jesus, like they don't have the full faith that you're expecting others to have. So Jesus doesn't just save people with full faith. They're little faith people. So he does come to heal people with little faith. He saves people with little faith. But more importantly, this story is not promising you that if you believe enough, Jesus will get you out of storms for the simple reason that you are not the disciples in the boat. The reason Jesus critiques the disciples for having little faith is because they were physically with Jesus in the boat. If they were by themselves and Jesus weren't in the boat, sure, be terrified. You are going to drown. But the Lord of heaven and earth is, is in the boat with you. He's come to bring his kingdom in the world. He's going to the cross to die for our sins. He's not get, God's not going to let him sink in the boat this very day. But the boat that you're in, or the house, or the marriage, or the body, or the investments, there is no promise from Jesus that these are safe. From sinking, crumbling, breaking, dying, or declining. Jesus nowhere promises that if you follow him, life will be easy. He nowhere promises that if you follow him, moth and rust won't destroy. And that thieves won't break in and steal. And that people won't get sick and die. In fact, just before this story, look back at what it says. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him... He gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You really want to follow me? Jesus is asking you this. He's offering you forgiveness, life with God forever, but in this life, you may be homeless. There's going to be pain. You want to come to me and you think there's going to be stability, earthly stability, security and privilege? You're going to be very disappointed because Jesus himself had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. So Jesus is not promising that his followers will save, sail smoothly through life. Well, then what does it look like to trust God in the midst of our own storms? And here's the answer. Jesus didn't come into the world to save us from our little storms. He didn't come to save people from drowning on the seas. He didn't come to save people from dying of cancer. What he came into the world to do was to deal with our sins, with the problem of my heart that alienates me from God. That's me, that's you. And that's what Jesus comes to deal with. And his whole life is headed toward the cross to, the, to pay for the penalty of our sins. And he rises again. 
He sits at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling as the king of heaven and earth, offering forgiveness of sins to everyone who repent and ask for mercy. And the problem he has come to deal with is that my rebellion against God, my slavery to sin, Satan's power over me, and he's come to save sinners. He has not come to save sailors from drowning. And that's why they drown all the time. And the, but the proof he's able to save sinners, that he has authority to do that, that he really is the son of God, is this story. This story of him calming the storm the stories of him healing the sick, they're not promises of what he will do for us when we're in a storm or when we're sick. He could do it. These stories, they do give us grounds to pray to him for help, knowing he could heal us, save us, if he wishes, and he might, and God often does. But that, he doesn't promise to do so. That's not why he came. He came that we might find mercy and forgiveness. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And him calming the storm is evidence that he is able to do that. But it's not evidence that he'll save you from the little storms of your life. He's come to save you from the big storm. Death and judgment before a holy God. But nowhere he promises to save us from the mini storms. And that's hard to hear, isn't it, this morning? And somebody's saying, Toby, <laughs> is there any comfort for me in this story? Of course there is. And I want to go back to Horatio Spafford. Because Horatio Spafford, his four daughters died. He, they drowned. Uh, could there be a more traumatic experience of being a mother, watching, being shipwrecked, and your kids are around you and they can't swim and... Horrendous, and um, and what actually happened? He he travelled to England to meet up with his wife. He was still in America, and on the way, the shipmaster said, "This is where the boat sunk." And when he arrived at the place the ship sunk, he wrote a song, beautiful hymn. It is well with my soul, and it starts. It's you know when peace like a river attendeth my way. He's searching for peace in his own stormy experience. And then the second verse, this is what he writes. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And it's weird. Why would a man dealing with his grief, seeking peace, the peace of God in his heart, peace like a river, why would he spend the entire hymn on Jesus and his work of salvation? Why would he bring up the subject of his own sin at a time like this? What has this got to do with these four little girls who have died? Everything. See, when things go wrong, one of the things we're tempted to to do is we are tempted to think we're being punished by God. But as we look at the cross, the Son of God giving his life, we're reminded, no, 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 we're not being punished for our sins. He was punished for me. And another thing, you may think, 
that maybe God doesn't care. My four daughters drown. Where is God in all of this? And Horatia, where does he go? He goes back to, does God care? And what he starts reflecting on is the big thing. Jesus' death for him because he's a sinner. And by reflecting on that in the midst of his own storm, he finds a certain peace. God does care. I don't know what he's doing in this moment. But my sin, he's cancelled, he's nailed it to the cross. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He does care about me cares about my fault. I don't know why he's done this, but I do know he cares. Proof, the cross. And so this story, it's a promise that Jesus, he has the power to calm the storm, and it's a promise that one day he will calm the massive storm. Someday soon, Jesus will stand and say one final, peace be still, and after his words will be followed by an unprecedented eternal calm. And knowing that helps us now. He's the one who calms the storm, not necessarily the little storms, but the big storm. And that's, that's where Spafford goes to. He goes to the cross. The son of God, power over the oceans. Yes, didn't do it for my daughters, but he's the one who died for me. I trust him. The evidence is before me. He's proved he cares about me, and that's how his soul is nourished in that moment. You know, on Thursday morning, I attended the funeral of Boris Tosic, and um, we've been praying for Naomi in this storm for many years, and it was a big storm she was in. And in storms, Jesus will either do one of two things. He'll either show off his power by delivering us from the storm, or he'll show off his power by keeping us close to him in the storm. And sometimes he'll say to the storm, peace be still, and other times he'll say to us, peace be still. And I think that was Naomi's experience. In her eulogy, she quoted Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That was her peace. That's faith. That's trust. I don't understand, I don't see what God's doing in this circumstance, but I can trust him. Why? It's not blind. I trust him because of the love of God poured out in the Lord Jesus. And so Naomi's faith, great faith, based on the evidence of Jesus' words and works. And that's what the gospel's putting before us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story today. And we ask that we might start this year with great faith, not with little faith, not with naive faith, gullible faith, misguided faith, unstantiated faith but with true faith based on both the words and the works of Jesus. And help us as we start this year to go back to see Jesus afresh and to love him more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.